You know, it's a great song, but it almost sounds like our worst nightmare. We live in a time and we live in a community that for good reason, our professional and personal reputation is very, very important. And we work really, really hard not to give our secrets away. We work really, really hard to make sure that we come across in the right way. And we've got a lot of good reasons for that, but often it leads us with a gap, a gap between who we are and who we pretend to be. And how do you handle your secrets? Most of us are alone in our secrets, whether it's we're struggling with depression, or we've had a failure, or our kids actually do rebel and disobey occasionally. <laughs> we actually do fight with our spouse. I've talked to families who are going through marital problems and they've told their kids, you can't tell anyone that we're about to get divorced because the brand, the reputation, is more important than the reality. And now people can't process grief and they can't process difficulty. Secrets are difficult. And they are especially difficult in our community, how we deal with them. We end up becoming expert brand managers, but not really good heart managers. And I love how it's expressed here through our two main characters as they describe this dichotomy of what you do and the weight of your secrets. Here's what Arthur Dimsdale, the pastor who notices this gap between who he is and what he does says, I have laughed in bitterness and agony of heart at the contrast between what I seem and what I am. And though it's the woman who gets the scarlet A, a reoccurring theme in the book is that she's more free than he is, buried under his own scarlet A, carved onto his own chest that he feels that people can see. Mr. Dimsdale was overcome with a great horror of mind, as if the universe were gazing at a scarlet token on his naked breast, right over his heart. And while he's preaching sermons against immorality and premarital sex and extramarital sex, and the Bible does speak clearly against that, that, that intimacy is best expressed in the context of marriage. And, and prior to marriage, God wants you to wait for your future spouse. And once you are married, I want you to save intimacy for within that. The Bible doesn't, hasn't changed that position. But the issue of scarlet letters is this hypocrisy, somebody who is preaching a position that he's not living, and he's not giving the grace of the struggle, that he struggles with the very thing that he's shaking his finger at. Meanwhile, the woman, she's the one that takes all the shame. She's the one that protects his reputation and she gets a scarlet A so she can be shamed by the rest of the community who clearly doesn't struggle with anything. She's standing there before the community with her scarlet A that she was required to put on. And here's what it says. When the young woman, the mother of this child, stood fully revealed before the crowd, it seemed to be her first impulse to clasp the infant closely to her bosom. She's got her baby pearl. Should I take the baby and use it to hide the scarlet A? Not so much as a motherly affection, as she might have, but to conceal that certain token which was wrought or fastened into her dress. But in a moment, however, she wisely judged that one token of her shame would poorly serve to hide the other. She took the baby in her arm 
with a burning blush and yet a haughty smile and a glance that would not be abashed, she looked around at the townspeople and neighbors and on the breast of her gown in fine red cloth surrounded with an elaborate embroidery and fantastic flourish of gold thread appeared the Scarlet A. She's made this thing bold, the emblem designed to shame her. For the next five to ten years, she lives a life of compassion. She knows what it's like to be shunned and judged and to have all her secrets thrown out before everybody. And rather than becoming bitter and angry, which would be understandable, she's drawn to be compassionate and care for and love on and serve the people in her community, even those who had judged her. So much so that years later, here's what they write. The letter was a symbol of her calling. Such helpfulness was found in her. So much power to do and power to sympathize that many people refused to interpret that scarlet A by its original signification of adulteress. They said that it meant able. Do you see that woman with the embroidered badge, they would say? It is our Hester, this town's own Hester, who is so kind to the poor and so helpful to the sick, so comfortable to the afflicted. The scarlet letter had the effect of a cross on a nun's bosom. It imparted to the wearer a kind of sacredness which enabled her to walk securely amid all the peril. Is it even possible that a scarlet A could become a sacred A? That's what happened to her. She turned a scarlet A into a sacred A. Could your greatest moment of weakness that you would not want to go through again and you would not want other people to know, but could your greatest weakness become your greatest strength? Could, you, could your greatest area of struggle, if you shared it with one person, a safe person, become an area of influence to draw you toward other people who are struggling, but they're alone in their struggles? Is it possible a scarlet A could turn into a sacred A? Well, to do that, if that's possible, that your greatest weakness could be your greatest strength, that, that the area of sharing might actually in, endear you toward other people who, who, who want to hear your story, you're going to have to move from being a, a brand manager to a heart manager, focusing on not my external how I appear, but my internal who I really am. Turning a scarlet A into a sacred A is going to require a massive reshift of priority because all of us are really, really good at being brand managers. So I'm gonna give you three reasons. Three reasons to just think about sharing a secret, a, just a secret with God and maybe one safe person. Now I know it's very, very difficult to find a safe person, but I wanna kind of build the case as to why you might want to. And the first reason is this. The first reason is when you expose a secret, it actually takes away the power of that secret. As a pastor, as a team, we get to hear firsthand secrets. I mean, I literally could just, I know enough of you and I know so many of your secrets in this room and they are safe with me. But you, when I talked to you and you shared about your marriage struggle, the years ago when there was a betrayal, when you shared with me about the fight or a kid that's rebelled or, or has had trouble with the law, 
as you shared with me your depression and what it looks like to try and wrestle with and help someone in depression or, or with an addiction, you were so glad to find some space that you could be honest and real that things aren't as squeaky clean as they look from the outside. And just in sharing with a pastor, with a friend in a small group, just the sharing of it, we haven't solved anything, but I'm no longer alone in it, and that secret loses its power just when you expose it to one safe person. And the theme of this book is that in a very dysfunctional way, Hester's secrets were out, but she becomes more and more free in the book. While the pastor, who's hiding his secret, and and she's decided to help him hide the secret by not saying who he is, he more and more is crushed under the weight of guilt and shame because he doesn't expose the secrets to anyone. And it not only doesn't lose its power, it has more and more power over him. Now, where does the Bible come in here? Well, when the, the, the writers of Jesus' story... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the first biography ever written about Jesus, it begins with his genealogy. And you know people are into genealogies, like, oh, I love studying genealogies, very important, and they're going on and on and on. You're like, wow, this sounds incredibly boring, right? It's like, so why would you start a, a, the first biography about Jesus with a boring biography? Well, let me read you a little excerpt from it. And it starts scandalously. Now, you have to understand, if you're Jewish, your genealogy is very important because it traces you as a rabbi or potential messiah back to Abraham and his descendants. And so you wanted your genealogy to be squeaky clean. It was the best of the best and everybody with the pedigree and everybody with the resume and what school they went to and all the wonderful things they did. And you would edit out all the scandalous material. You hope there wasn't any anyway, but you definitely edited it out. But right out of the gate, here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Oh, he's a king. That's good. But he did have adultery and kill someone. The son of Abraham, the guy who lied about his wife twice and told her to beat her maidservant Hagar. Huh. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, and Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And we're like, all right, Chad, that's exactly what you said. Boring. Because we don't know the scandal. He just took the most scandalous story from the Old Testament and said, this is part of Jesus' family, Judah and Tamar. And they had these two children out of wedlock. And just so you know, Judah is the father-in-law of Tamar. And through a scandalous story of adultery and temple prostitution and, and, and tricking Judah into sleeping with her because he supposedly was a good moral leader and yet he went into a temple prostitute who was really her disguised, they had two children. And Jesus, right out of the gate, says, my family tree is filled with dysfunctional people, people who are religious hypocrites, people who don't keep their own commands. And I want you to know, rather than shame and guilt, right out of front, my tree is wide open to anyone, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you. You can be part of the story. Jesus is like, all my secrets are out there from my family tree. And this gives even more so. We're just going to focus on this story today. But it's an idea that I think we should wrestle with. Why would the Bible begin by exposing all the family secrets in Jesus' family tree except to say that when you expose your secrets in a safe place, the place of grace before God, they begin to lose their power. Now contrast that with doing what most of us do. We hide our secrets. We pretend. We control our image. I saw an interview on the Tim Ferriss show with this quote. If you don't 
deal with your demons, they go into the cellar and begin to lift weights. If you don't deal with your secrets, if you don't find a safe place to talk about what you're going through, those demons will tunnel down into the cellar and they will get stronger and stronger and stronger. But just having someone, a place, a safe place to be honest and real about the fact that you don't live up to your Facebook page and you don't live up to your resume in some ways, it keeps those demons from crawling down into the cellar. I got a phone call from a friend of mine. I've been in a small group with him for 20 plus years, but he moved away and I hadn't seen him in a long time. And he said, about three weeks ago when he called me, he said, Chad, do you remember the small group we had with a group of guys back in Atlanta? I said, yeah. He said, do you remember the time that I got kind of bold enough to say that I really struggled with pornography? I said, yeah, I think I do remember that day. He said, I kind of looked at all the other guys in the room. I said, guys, I need help on this. I really struggle with pornography, and, and, and I've kind of been alone in this and the shame of this. I need help. Do any of you guys struggle with this? Nobody. Silence. He said, I remember, Chad, you saying, you know, it's not my top struggle, but it's definitely a struggle. And thanks so much for sharing that. How can we help? Because I think it's something as guys, we do need a place to be honest about how pornography can, can be a struggle for us. He said, everybody else looked at me like, nope, nope, never, never, never had a problem with lust at all. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. He said, I was so glad that you were honest because it made me feel like I had a place. But this is the part he didn't tell me until this call three weeks ago. He said, every guy came up to me one-on-one -on -one in the next week. And one of them said, in fact, I so struggle with it that at night I go for a walk in my neighborhood. This is back before it was easy to get access to pornography. He said, I go through a walk in my neighborhood like I'm just getting exercise and I'm looking into people's trash cans to see if I can find a hustler or a playboy. And I thought, oh, I wish I had known so we could have just been helped, so we could have been come alongside and say, you know, hey, we all struggle with different things. You're not alone in that. Let's, let's come together. Let's, let's move in a, in, a, in a purer direction, in a more faithful direction. But he was alone in his secrets because there was no safe place to share them. The second reason I would just encourage you to share with God, he already knows anyway, by the way, he's not going to be surprised, and share with one safe person is because when you expose your secrets, it creates this inner freedom. Oh my goodness, I have to pretend. Oh my goodness, you know, somebody else has depression. Somebody else has had a business failure. Somebody else's kids aren't perfect all the time. There's this inner freedom of, of closing the gap between who you pretend to be and who you are. And say, so, you know what? I still aspire to this, but, but I'm not there yet. It creates inner freedom. That's certainly what we see in the conversations between Hester and Arthur. They have a conversation later in the book, and he's been weighed down by guilt. And she's been kind of forced, again, dysfunctionally, to have all her secrets out. After a while, the minister fixed his eyes on Hester Prinz. Hester, have you found peace? She smiled drearily, looked down upon her bosom, where the scarlet A was, and said, Have you? None, nothing but despair, he answered. 
What else could I look for being what I am and leading such a life as mine? Were I an atheist, a man devoid of conscience, a wretch with, with coarse and brutal instincts, I might have found peace if I was an atheist. Long ere now, Hester, I am most miserable. But the people reverence you. You got a great reputation, said Hester. And surely you work good among them. Doesn't that bring you comfort? More misery, Hester. Only the more misery. As concerns the good which I appear to do, I have no faith in it. What can a ruined soul like mine affect toward the redemption of other souls or a polluted soul toward their purification? And as for the people's reverence, oh, would that it be turned to scorn or hatred. I must stand up in that pulpit and meet so many eyes turned up toward my face as if the light of heaven were beaming from it. I must see my flock hungry for the truth and listening to my words as if the very tongue of Pentecost were speaking. And then I look inward and discern the black reality of what they idolize. Can you feel the weight? And not just theoretically, personally you felt the weight, haven't you? Man, I must be the only person who ever wondered if I married the wrong person. I must be the only one who wonders if we're going to make it. I must be the only person whose kids got that phone call from the school, from the police. I can't tell anyone. There's no inner freedom, and God wants you to have inner freedom. I'm not being trapped by the chains of your secrets. So let me go back to Genesis and tell you the story of Judah and Tamar. Because Tamar is a daughter-in-law to Judah, and her husband dies. And in that patriarchal uh, assigned marriages culture, he promises that he will betroth her to his other son. And she waits for years, and he doesn't keep his word. But he's the important religious leader of the tribe of Judah, but he doesn't keep his word. And she has a firsthand look at some of the hypocrisy of his life. Well, in order for her family line to continue on and for her to be provided for, she knows she needs a son. And he's not keeping his word, though she's the religious leader. He's in charge, and he's supposed to have gotten her married to this man years ago, and it was according to their law. So she knows something about his character. He's heading into town, a nearby town, so she sneaks into that town and dresses up like a temple prostitute and puts a veil over her face. He comes by town, and he propositions her, this religious leader, stellar man of the community. As he's about to sleep with her, they begin to negotiate the price. And he says, well, how about I'll give you a donkey for the night? So one donkey for sleeping with you. And she's like, well, did you bring the donkey? Oh, no, I left the donkey at home. Well, what, am I gonna, what are you going to give me so that I will know you're going to do that? She says, what pledge will you give me? He says, well, tell you what. I will give you my signet ring and my cord and my staff. It's in your hand. She says, that's what I want. Your personal staff, your signet ring, your cord. And then you go get the donkey tomorrow and we'll swap back. So he gave it to her. And they uh, went into her and she conceived by him. So she gets pregnant. Now he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. He doesn't know anything about it. He just thinks it was a one-night stand in a far-off place. He comes back. He goes to get the donkey. He sends the donkey back with a messenger because he doesn't want to be caught in that area of town. They come back like, hey, have you seen a temple prostitute? We don't have a temple prostitute. Who sits there at the gate? Never. Don't know what you're talking about. Comes back, I don't know, so keep the donkey, I guess. 
unrelated, as the leader of his community, his daughter-in-law is found to be pregnant. Shocking, just shocking. And when she's brought out, now that she's beginning to show a few weeks later, a few months later, the whole community comes out, this is outrageous. Someone in our community would be unfaithful to their spouse. Someone would be unfaithful by not having, waiting till they are married to have intimacy. So they come to the great leader. We have found a woman caught in, in, in extramarital affairs. What should we do? Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, oh, shocking, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah, the great man, says, burn the witch, burn her. She shall be burned. It's just like the scarlet letter. Preaching one thing, living another way. And what's amazing is that Jesus, when he puts his family tree in place, he says, I have come for people lost in religious hypocrisy. He kept Judah in there. And I've come for people lost in deceptive rebellion who slept with your father-in-law to continue on your family line. God says, my family tree is open to all extremes of people who have secrets. Because he knows how lost we are. Somebody came up to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, could we grab lunch? I said, sure. <clears throat> so what's going on? He said, I remember a sermon you gave 10 years ago. I'm like, holy cow, wow, you guys get the gold star. Most people can't remember what I said three days ago. Well, way to go. He's like, well, what did I say? He said, well, you were a little elusive, but you implied that one of your children had some kind of big deal issue, maybe involving the police or something, but it was a big deal, and, and how you as a family were navigating the, the challenges of that personally as a family, and I remember that. I remember thinking, wow, I wouldn't want anyone to know, and Chad said that while it was going on on stage in an appropriate way with hiding some of the details because it wasn't appropriate, but to let you know, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what we're navigating. He says, well, I have a situation like that, and we just had a great, hard, difficult lunch together where he didn't feel alone in his struggles because I had opened about my struggles a decade ago. And he saw the inner freedom I had in the middle of it, though you know, it was hard, let alone the freedom I had later, and said, man, I want whatever that is, especially in a society that we live in, a community we live in, where gossip travels so fast and things get exaggerated and everyone has to live up to their brand. Do you have a safe person, just one person that you could share like one secret with so you're not stuck in that inner bondage? That, that's why we started our church because it's in the grace of God, whatever you find out, whatever I find out about you, I'm not surprised. The Bible's filled with people who struggle with everything. Doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's easy. But God says, here's an environment of unconditional acceptance, whatever you've done, so we can work through this together. Third reason to share a secret with at least God and one safe person is that secrets When you expose a secret, it dismantles that duplicitousness. Again, we teach our kids how to be brand managers because they're not allowed to share their struggles because their struggles might relate to our struggles. So we have taught duplicitousness, how to be one thing and not the other, not how to process the reality and to talk about the gap between the brand and the heart. And when you expose your secret to God, let alone one other safe person, 
it dismantles that duplicitousness. And you feel it. You feel the hypocrisy. You've shaken your finger at other people's hypocrisy, but you look in the mirror and you know you are as well. I know I am as well. People say all the time, I'm turned off by hypocrisy. And I'm like, well, great, you'll be turned off by me. But I at least try and admit that I'm a hypocrite. I just try not to do it so often. And when I do it, I try to admit that I did it so I can do better. Isn't that so much more freeing than kind of pretending? Pretending you are something you're not? It's interesting in the book that the pastor who's been watching this woman that he impregnated and loves be scorned by messages coming out of his sermons with the scarlet letter A and yet when her husband comes, her real husband uh, comes back and disguises himself as a doctor and lives with the pastor and realizes this guy's really weighed down by guilt and he's got a sickness of the soul and one night as the pastor falls asleep the husband of Hester sneaks in and looks at his chest and under his shirt it says this, it was revealed but it was too irreverent to describe the revelation saying it's too gross to describe. He had carved a letter A into his own chest. Later in the book, he stands before Hester, before all the people, and reveals what's on his chest. Most of the spectators testified to having seen on the breast of the unhappy minister a scarlet letter on the minister. The very semblance of the one worn by Hester Prynne but this one was imprinted on his flesh. He knew he was an adulterer. He knew he was a hypocrite. He knew he didn't live up to his own standards. And by pounding it every week in the pulpit didn't rescue him. He needed a safe place to be honest and real. Instead, he was weighed down by the guilt and literally carved, punished himself for what he had done. So where does the Bible pick up on the story? Well, last we left off, Judah was wagging his finger, burn the witch, burn her, burn that woman for doing these kind of things, not in our community. So, just as they're about to, you can go go back one slide, I'll tell them more of the story before I get there. (laughs) Just as they're about to hold him account, hold her account, she's like, hey, hey, before you guys burn me, I want to reveal who the husband is. Who's the man who impregnated me? So he comes over. All right, I can't believe a daughter-in-law of mine would do such and such a thing. She's like, well, the man who impregnated me, um, he um, had this signet ring. And this staff belonged to him. And this cord. Oh, you were the temple pastor. Oh. And to his credit, Judah owns up to his hypocrisy and his duplicitousness. And doesn't change the fact that God wants us to be faithful to our spouse and our future spouse and damage is caused when we don't. None of that changes in the grace that God offers when we fall short of that. And he comes back and basically says, she was more righteous than me because she didn't pretend to be morally superior. And God puts Judah, and God puts Tamar into his family tree. Now, they have two kids. 
So a few months later, she's pregnant, and when she's pregnant, she gives birth to children. It's very interesting in the parallel here, because as they're giving birth, the first child is born kind of breech, but his hand comes out before his head does. And so they wanted to know who the firstborn was. So when the first child is born, it says, it came to pass in the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was that when she was giving birth, the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread. How interesting is that? And he tied a scarlet thread around the the first hand to come out to recognize this is the firstborn. However, the hand went back in. Kids got kind of turned around. And then the second child came out. And the second child came out first. As it continues, it says this was a very painful experience. Now it happened that as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach is upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach or painful. How dysfunctional is that? Imagine your whole life. Like, hey, what's your name? Painful. What's your name? Breach. I mean, you talk about like, these are such dysfunctional parents. They've named their child something and made fun of their whole life. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread because his hand had come out first, and named his name Zera, meaning Brilliant. Now, we all have younger or older brothers. Can you imagine your parents call you painful? Oh, and have you met my brother? Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, have you seen what he's done? Have you seen what he's done? He's the soccer player. He scored the top goal. He was on the debate club. Oh, I got to always live up to brilliant. And Jesus puts all of these folks in his family tree. He works with you if you're a Judah. He's willing to work with you and, and put you in his family tree if you're tomorrow. In that genealogy we looked at earlier, maybe you understand why it's so scandalous. Yet God was saying right out of the bat that the biography he offers and the opportunity he offers is that wherever you are and whatever you've done, whatever inconsistency there is in your life, God wants you to know that he right out of the gate says that his family tree runs through people like Tamar and Judah and Perez and Zerah. So, how about you? Do you have a safe place to share your secrets? I know that's terrifying. It's terrifying for most of us. And it's especially terrifying in our community. Why don't you just begin by trying to share a secret this week with God? Just, he already knows. But share the secret with God and maybe one safe person. Say, listen, maybe I want to join that men's group that Ken Kington's going to start here in about a month. Maybe I want to get into women's group. Maybe I want to call a pastor. Maybe I want to find one friend that I don't think is going to gossip about that. And that's very hard to find somebody who's not going to gossip about it. But someplace I can be safe and say, I'm struggling with being a mom. I'm struggling trying to start this business. I'm struggling trying to figure out how this works. I've got habits I'm not proud of. I've got a bank account I'm not proud of. I've got an account that I've got hidden from somebody. I need help. Share your secret with God and one safe person. And when you do that, you're going to find that your greatest weakness can become your greatest strength. I was talking to my friend Art. I interviewed him several months ago on stage. I just talked to him last week. And Art said, you know, I'm going through prostate cancer. It was very embarrassing, but I decided to go public with that. And by going public with that, 
God used that to remind me of kind of a history of things that I hadn't dealt with, some pride issues, some lust issues, some, some uh, accumulation of stuff issues, and he shared that all about a month ago. He said, but by sharing these weaknesses, by sharing these struggles, I have had a platform to influence people I never thought I'd have. I got two guys who've been calling me every day. I pray for them. Every day I talk to them about how I navigated prostate cancer and how to deal with the, the insecurities of that and the weirdness of that and the, the challenges of that and how to trust God in the middle of it. And he said, Chad, I just cannot tell you what God is doing in my life because I let people into my struggle, my medical struggle and my spiritual struggle and how God's using that to help me influence other people. That's our key takeaway today. Share your secrets with God and one safe person. Share your secrets. Do you know that's why we start our church? We started our church 20 years ago. Actually, a little bit longer than that. But our first public service was Easter. 20 years ago this Easter. This is a big Easter. 20 years our church began. And we, 20 years ago, I came a few years later, wrote personal notes to our friends in our community and said, listen, I know you may not be religious, but I invite you to come to a church that you can hear about the Bible in an honest, non-judgmental way. Go at your own pace. Come as you are. And that first Easter service, friends in our community who wrote personal notes to friends in our community is what began our church. And 10 years ago this January is the 10-year anniversary of us being in this room where those of us who came wrote personal notes to invite people to come to explore environments of grace and love and truth. And so this Easter, maybe you want to do the same. We're at 25% capacity, so it's going to be tough to fit everybody in. We're running six services. we got a Saturdays at 3.15 and 4.30. Sundays we have four services, 8.45, 10, 11, 15, and 12.30. you got to make reservations on the website. But maybe you're saying, I want to be part of a church where I can deal with the gap. I can break those chains of the secrets that have held me down. I don't want to be held down by all this secrecy anymore. And I love coming to a church that can be honest. Don't share your secrets with everybody. But I do need a place I could share with somebody. Maybe this Easter is your chance to invite somebody else who you know some of their secrets. And you know they could use a little dose of truth and grace and love. And they felt it from you personally, but maybe they'd like to feel it from their Heavenly Father. As you listen to this next song, I want you to think about the chains in your own life, the secrets in your own life, the areas that you might want God to bring you some freedom. Let's listen together.